Hi, my name is Dejan Milojčić. Um, I'm Distinguished Technologies at Hewlett Packard Labs, and this is a series of webinars. And I have a uh, real pleasure to host uh, Ray Bozolet today. Ray Bozolet is the senior fellow, one and only, inside of Hewlett Packard Labs. At Welcome. At the moment. <laughs> yeah. So, Ray, I've known you for, I think, more than 10 years. Um, largely, it was you coming from the ceiling, from the... Telecommuting. Speakers, telecommuting. Gives you an ethereal quality. Yeah, and then you and I incidentally reported to a number of same managers, even today, Norm Jupy, Stan Williams at different times, yeah. otherwise I'm not sure how it would have turned out, and now to Colin uh, Bash. But I know very little about you other than you like scotch, so can you tell us a few things about you? That's the most important thing, to be frank, but uh, I am an international man of mystery. Uh, I've been uh, uh, working here at Labs for about 25 years. When I started out uh, at Labs, I was working for John Meyer in the Printing Technology Lab, mm -hmm. and I started at the absolute bottom of the technical ladder for a PhD in physics. Um, I was about 35 years old at the time, and I worked on a number of projects that uh, I would say were not especially optical, although we used optical instrumentation as part of them. So one of the early projects was a handheld scanner called CapShare, which uh, was uniquely named to hide its most essential features. So something you, uh, you really want to get right in marketing, uh, we didn't. Um, but that eventually became a paper motion sensor for large format printers. Mm -hmm. So the printers that are printing 200 uh, feet of mylar, six feet wide. Uh, I, about 10, 12 years ago, that's when I suggested that we reboot photonics uh, within HP. And I convinced uh, Stan Williams, uh, Dick Lampman, who was the director of labs at the time, and uh, the CTO at the time, Shane Robeson, that this would be a good idea. And I was originally a group of one, um, and uh, now we have about 25 people in the group. And during all that time, I've lived in Seattle uh, and commuted down here roughly every other week. So the common pattern I notice is being group of one you are also one and only senior fellow. That's, That's an accident of history. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know what you've done to the others, but uh, uh, there's 18,000 technologists and only single senior fellow. So that's uh, amazing recognition, but also it's a uh, uh, huge responsibility. So how are you taking that? Where, where are you succeeding in that role? Where you think you can improve? Uh, I don't really Perhaps I should, but I don't think of myself as being at the pinnacle of some pyramid. Mm -hmm. uh, I instead think of myself as someone who's, uh, uh, to the extent I lead the, those 18,000 people, I lead from behind. I try to make sure that I'm available. I try to inspire when I can. I try to make sure that we think about um, uh, technology and the technical career path inside the company in the right way. I try to break down barriers when I can, um, but I don't feel a desperate need to get out in front of everyone and regale them with my wisdom uh, mm -hmm. because that's in uh, distressfully short supply. So I, I think the primary role for uh, uh, senior technologists, and again, you know, uh, 
we should have four or five senior fellows right now, but because of splits and retirements and other things, there's only one. I'm sure that'll change in the near future. Um, but I think mentoring is uh, critical, and it's hard to do that in a group. So you see opportunities as they exist. HP or Hewlett Packard Enterprise is IT company. We're producing hardware and, and other things. Uh, and you're a photonics person. And photonics is one part of, of IT company. But you have been influencing beyond that. So how did you find that experience? Where do you think you can go beyond your area? I think that uh, one of the things that I learned from Norm Jopi and his organization, uh, even before I worked for him, mm -hmm. uh, when he ran uh, the computer architecture lab, was that you really have to understand the whole system uh, in order to figure out the best path for the contribution that you're making. And so I think one of the reasons that, to the extent I have been able to contribute outside of photonics alone, it has been because of the patient tutoring that I have received from other people who are working on their contributions to some overarching technology. So when you say a high-performance computer system, it's got tons and tons of parts. I understand the photonics uh, better than any of the other parts, but I know uh, the constraints that the rest of that system places on mm -hmm. what the photonics will do or even can do, and I know what benefits the photonics offers in the context of what it is that a high-performance computer should do. So um, I think it's uh, just, uh, I have benefited tremendously from the inherent and intrinsic multidisciplinarity that we find when we do research in industry. And to reinforce the point, um, I think things are mixing and matching as of lately. There isn't any clear cut computation, communication, memory. Uh, you have been trying to do computation using photonics. That's right. Others are doing computation using memory chips and yeah, I think that uh, the it, it's one of the uh, one of the interesting consequences of seeing uh, the end of Moore's law mm -hmm. right in front of us, where you begin to realize that there are specific problems that uh, CMOS is really not going to get much better at solving. And this is where the concept of accelerators, and in particular accelerators, attached to a new uh, computer architecture, mm -hmm. memory-driven compute systems, I think has some real potential because it allows us to say, okay, well, I've got a great general-purpose computer, but then when I'm trying to solve uh, some NP-hard or, or combinatorial optimization problem, I need another technology, and oh, uh, attached to this particular MDC, there is an accelerator that will help me solve that problem. And I think that uh, that over the last couple of years, my eyes have really been opened uh, mm. looking at uh, memory-driven computing as not just, uh, you know, public relations, but as a real architectural paradigm shift that makes it possible for us to innovate on a, a platform that's got years ahead of it. When people get to your level, they are usually very busy focusing on business impact, but you never stop publishing. And right. it shows you are one of the top cited uh, nowadays, at least, um, technologies inside of uh, Hewlett Packard. Can you give some advice to young people how they uh, approach publishing? Uh, yes. Uh, so first, let me, let me take a step back mm -hmm. and start at the beginning of your question. Um, 
I have accepted a management role is inevitable, um, but I think of myself as a fake manager. I really am still a researcher, and after that I'm what uh, is known as a principal investigator, so a technical lead of a large team. Mm -hmm. And I f find that I am uh, drawn, I continue to be drawn to the research, uh, to the fundamental technology, and that is more important to me than uh, some of the, uh, uh, I'll say, raw management aspects. Mm -hmm. And so really, if, if you want to, if you're a researcher or if you're someone doing advanced development and you would like to build a publishing career, that has to be part and parcel of every weekly plan that you make. It has to be an attitude about where your career is going to go. And so the, there is a big difference between managing a group just as their manager and leading a group because you want to contribute to the technology. And so as your career evolves, uh, you continue to publish by planning for it. Mm -hmm. Good advice. Now, you mentioned research over and over. You accomplished many results. What is one single result that you're most proud of? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, in terms of collaborative research, I still look back at the collaboration between my team and Norm Jopi's uh, computer architects as one of the most fruitful uh, collaborations that, um, uh, that I've ever had in my life. I learned so much about what was in the compute system. I learned so much about what the hindrances and uh, limitations and opportunities that the Interconnect Network uh, applied. We wrote some path-breaking papers uh, together and for me it was a huge amount of fun because it was so um, new to me. And it was amazing to me that I could contribute in an area where, to be honest with you, all by myself I could never have touched because I just flat out didn't have the expertise. Um, in terms of individual research results, uh, the, I, won't, I won't go back to the Paleozoic era and say my PhD thesis mm -hmm. because that's, uh, I hardly even remember it. But uh, over the course of my career, I've been involved in a many opportunities to design or help design lasers based on fundamental concepts. And uh, so I contributed to uh, some of the early design work of the uh, laser interferometer design for the LIGO, uh, the gravitational wave experiments. And right now I'm working on a super fun uh, project on trying to understand the physics and engineering of uh, mode-lock lasers that are roughly the size of a grain of sand. Uh, they're extremely complex and current techniques for understanding them uh, require integrating partial differential equations on a computer over days. Mm -hmm. And I've got a technique, I think, that'll make it possible to do it in minutes. And so I'm very excited about that right now. I hope it works. Yeah, I also <laughs> hope Norm Juppie is watching this video. That's right. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if you are among the people who never make mistakes. I'm certainly not. Oh boy. So. What is your favorite mistake that you've ever made, and what did you learn from it? So I've, I've made two, uh, re, two, so if you're an experimental physicist, 
mistakes are part and parcel of the, every day in the lab. You know, something doesn't work the way you were supposed to. Uh, nature is the referee and uh, has final authority. You don't get to go to the film or anything like that. It's just over. Um, but I would say probably the biggest mistake I've made in recent history has been um, I really thought that we'd be able to build uh, very, very large-scale networks of uh, coherently uh, uh, communicating photonic devices to make a computer out of it because I thought that that technology was well within what uh, current foundries, uh, semiconductor fabrication mm -hmm. facilities could do, but it turned out it was extremely hard for them. And so the results were impressive from a design and fabrication standpoint, but were disappointing to me personally from a computational standpoint. It just didn't work as well as I had hoped. Um, and so what I learned is, uh, essentially relearned, uh, you, despite your best intentions, you can be half a step ahead of the best available technology, mm -hmm. and sometimes you just have to wait. Uh, even though that's not fun. But then in terms of professional disappointment, uh, that the collaboration that I was talking about earlier uh, with computer architects was started so that we could submit a big proposal to DARPA uh, to work on photonic interconnects inside of a computer chip, mm -hmm. so an on-chip uh, photonic interconnect. And we thought we had a dynamite proposal. It was for about $50 million, and we lost. And uh, I was shocked because I had helped DARPA start the program. I thought we had the inside track. But, uh, you know, again, uh, fate has a way of uh, handing you uh, lemons uh, and you have to figure out how to deal with it. And it worked out just fine for us. The uh, teams that won that contract, uh, they got paid the money and then it never went anywhere. And they're all gone, you know, they've, uh, mm. the, uh, those companies, uh, are no longer in the same shape they were in. Um, and we, on the other hand, started small and built up an effort that I think uh, we all can be very proud of. Uh, it's a really substantial effort that uh, is in the process of tech transfer. And I don't know that uh, we would have gotten here uh, if we had won that contract. So you've been talking about research, but research is never the end goal. No. The end goal is hopefully transitioning towards adoption, product, et cetera. And you have had uh, quite a bit of successes there. Can you share with us your path? What were I, I think positive experience, what were downsides? Yeah, I think the, um, I think one of the operating principles that we have had that has helped us get the right kind of attention inside of our company is the notion that, uh, you know, it's uh, our group is named Large Scale Integrated Photonics. Mm -hmm. I named it about 11, 12 years ago. And that's been on my business card through company separations and splits and under all these different managers that you and I have shared over time. That's been our group name. And uh, everything that we do, even the basic research, we do in a way that we think can scale. And so the output of our work is never one device. It's a device that we can replicate millions of times uh, with high yield. And so when we do publish a paper, it's not a hero device. It's uh, statistical analysis of a very large number of devices that work. 
And so I really don't know how to advise uh, academic uh, researchers on the best way to seek research topics and publish. But I think, uh, you know, Bell Labs was a place where you could do fundamental research with zero applications. I don't know that it's, that's a sustainable path for uh, industrial R&D mm -hmm. anymore. But I think it is possible to justify a deeper understanding of the fundamentals given that you're using a platform that you believe will scale. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about research, we've been talking about products, or as you call it, average Joe's chips. Uh, so how do you position yourself? Because you have to do research, you have to think about products, you think about all at the same time, or you move back and forth. How, how, how do you do that on a daily basis? You have, well, what, what I have tried to do is recognize my limitations. I'm not someone uh, who is going to take a technology and move it into a business unit because of my great business insight, because I don't have any. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think every, I think that in particular, HP Labs and uh, now uh, Hewlett Packard Labs has a history of doing research that emphasizes the fundamentals with an eye towards moving into product as rapidly as possible. And so I think that as a researcher, you've always got two or three pr projects going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, one of them is going to get closer to tech transfer and, and is going to require a devotion of a significant amount of time to see that handed off to the right engineering uh, staff in the business unit. But at the same time, you can't, you know, you've still got another project or two where you're still doing research. You can't allow yourself to get stale. I think that if you move away from doing research for two to three years, it is <clears throat> very hard to get back. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work to stay current in your field, uh, to read your fiercest competitors' papers. You know, I try to read one or two papers a month that I wish I had written. Um, and so that, that skill, that ability to uh, keep up is hard to maintain if you get away from it for a few years. You mentioned Bell Labs as something that is not sustainable anymore, but both you and I have been working in a lab, a industry lab, and there are only a few remaining ones. IBM, Microsoft has also downscaled to Redmond. So what, what is your take? What is sustainable versus uh, what may not have future soon? I think that, uh, it's what I was alluding to earlier, uh, I think that research that has a, a clear tech transfer path if it is successful is more likely to receive the support of executives uh, and is less likely to just get arbitrarily axed because um, uh, they're trying to manipulate the stock price before uh, they mm -hmm. report results. Um, you. Uh, you should be able to, in just 30 seconds, I, I've got all the folks on my team uh, understanding that they need to have an elevator talk. If they're all of a sudden trapped in an elevator with uh, uh, Antonio uh, Neri, our CEO, uh, and he says, well, what do you do? Uh, you have 30 seconds before he gets off the elevator, maybe a little longer in San Jose, given the state of those elevators right now. But um, you've got 30 seconds to explain to them 
what it is that you're doing and to put it in a context that he will be able to appreciate. And if you can't do that, if you can't just relatively quickly articulate the impact you're ultimately going to have on your group, your company, your industry, the world, uh, then you are not likely to survive. So Ray, I'm Antonio Neri, what do you do? Uh, my goal in life is to replace as much of the copper wiring in the world with optical fiber at data rates that you can't even dream of right now. And we'll communicate with it, we'll compute with it, and uh, you'll essentially be able to access a high-performance computer in your phone. Excellent. It, I didn't time it, but it looks like 30 seconds. So one of these themes that you mentioned are really important and are not just for um, marketing is the end of Moore's Law, and you touched on it. So what do you think will succeed? Do you have any suggestions? Uh, I think that the thinking that you can get away with doing tomorrow what you did yesterday is, is now going to be challenged by the fact that it's going to be brutally hard to recover your uh, non-recoupable expenses, uh, your initial investment in new technologies, uh, because the cost of the mask sets, the cost of the wafers, the cost of using these external fabs is just going to start skyrocketing uh, because we're getting closer and closer and closer to just a few nanometers in uh, circuit feature size. Quantum effects are going to start becoming important. Uh, and this isn't quantum computing, this is just classical computing. Uh, your ability to abstract away all sorts of complicated physics for circuit designers will get harder. And so I think that one of the ways that you get away from that, at least in the hardware industry, I have no idea what to tell people in the software industry because I don't mm -hmm. understand it at all, but um, is to think about uh, different architectures. Uh, you know, the von Neumann architecture with CMOS is going to hit a brick wall at 90 miles an hour. Uh, and so there are quite a few hardware startups out in the world today that really, if you look under the hood at what they're doing, they're building accelerators, in some cases at the board level, in some cases at the chip level. And so moving to a world where uh, we have a large shared pool of memory and anything you hang onto that pool of memory has access to that memory at any time that it wants it. And then thinking about what are the real limitations that prevent me from training a neural network? How can I accelerate that? Uh, is the, do I need radically new physics or is this something that I might be able to pull off the shelf? Uh, but in a, from an application space in a different area than IT. And uh, I, I think that's where looking at different architectures, looking at something that isn't simply a lather, rinse, and repeat of the things we already know how to do, um, is uh, shouldn't be as tempting as it used to be. So you mentioned train, and then you mentioned quantum. Um, there are a few bandwagons, one on quantum technologies in general, another bandwagon with quantum computing specifically. What is your take on likelihood of success? I, I can't tell you how likely it is that a quantum computer will ultimately be built. What I can tell you is that uh, quantum computing isn't going to be a thing until one can be used to answer a question 
that we've never been able to answer before and now can only answer because we have a quantum computer available to answer it. Mm -hmm. uh, then quantum computing is real. So short of that goal, it's, uh, it's fun, but it's not real. The uh, second thing to keep in mind is that what I think quantum computers will ultimately be most useful for is solving quantum problems. Mm -hmm. So I've said a multitude of times in other venues that probably one of the most valuable things a quantum computer will ever do is find a material that will replace silicon that will launch another Moore's Law for classical computing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, uh, uh, it, solving, uh, finding ground states of wave functions or solving quantum transport problems, these things that sound esoteric I think have a lot of practical applications. But they aren't ever really going to be useful for manipulating extremely large sets of data in a precise way and then producing a very large output, like all the weights in a very complex neural mm. network, um, because they're really not set up to do that. Very interesting and insightful question. Um, we are probably not alone to solve these problems and um, answer these questions. There's probably a role for governments to help us, for universities. How do you work with them? Uh, I think the, uh, I think, first of all, when you're working with a university, it's. Uh, important that you can bring something to the table besides money. So throwing money at a university is a, a great way of getting a warm feeling mm -hmm. because you're making a contribution to the world. But the kind of multidisciplinarity that we take for granted in an industrial lab is virtually absent in the academic world. And so being able to bring people from a couple of different disciplines mm -hmm. to work with uh, the universities and perhaps to even bring the students into our labs as interns uh, produces a much bigger benefit for both parties because mm -hmm. they get to see what it's like to work in an industrial lab and we get to take advantage of the brilliance that uh, is uh, so common in academia. Uh, as far as governments go, I, when you're in a company going to the government looking for money, uh, two things have to be true for me before I'll consider it. The first is I don't just want to compete with universities. I think that's unethical. The second is I'm looking for a partner when I go to the government. Uh, I'll, I'm willing to pay 50% of the cost of the project, but I want to find uh, a program manager in the government who really believes that this project that we will then work on together will have a big impact. And if you don't have that kind of a meeting of the minds, uh, then you really shouldn't be working with that program manager. If you walk into DARPA, or ARO or someplace like that, and when you see a program manager, you look at him or her as though they were just a bag of money, um, then you probably uh, don't belong there. Another place for meeting of minds are professional organizations. Um, there's OSA, there's IEEE. What is your experience? Are they still adequate place for advancing technology? I think that they are, but, you know, because, so I'll, I'll answer in the context of these radical changes that I see um, happening in IT. Uh, they need to up their game and they need to modernize uh, because, you know, optics, there's all of the fundamental research that is done in optics that is now feeding into this tremendous opportunity in communication and compute that is not really well represented uh, in these organizations. There's an occasional new conference, but there's, you know, a paradigm shift in a field requires a paradigm shift in the professional societies. 
And as a result, I think the gap between the societies and industrial needs and the societies and student training is starting to widen. And so, uh, you know, I would like to be able to work with professional societies to figure out some way to train uh, students on the kinds of tools Use, solving the kinds of problems we face so that there's uh, a less of a startup. You know, I, I, don't, I can hire someone and they can hit the ground mm -hmm. running instead of waiting a year or two before they learn uh, how to operate in the 21st century. And so there's a role for all professional societies to play in that kind of a transition from one place to another. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they're quite ready for that yet. They, they need to step up. Ray, I hope everyone learned as much as I did. I listened to you many times, but every time I learned something new. Thank you very much. You bet.